Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a joy. Mark Lassery joins us. And yeah, we can talk Milwaukee basketball and all that. But far more, this is a story of West Hartford, Connecticut, wandering over to Clark University, the land of rocketry and Mr. Goddard, where he rocketed through distressed investment to the success of his Avenue Capital Group. Mr. Lassery joins us this morning to look at this pandemic, the partition of America, the distress that is out there, and the view forward for his industry. Mark, are you optimistic? Optimistic about opportunity in 2021. Um, well, first of all, thank you for that introduction. I love that. Uh, very few times do people talk about Clark, but um, yeah, I am actually um, pretty optimistic. I think for us, um, what you are seeing is it's a little bit of what you just talked about. You're you're seeing that there are problems in a number of places, but there's also growth. So for us, really what we're finding is opportunities mm -hmm. where we can invest in situations where people need capital uh, and we're providing that capital, but we're doing it at a pretty steep price. When you clear a balance sheet out, you are now clearing within the reality of a Fed at the zero bound. Has yep. the Fed distorted your part of the hedge fund world? It actually has. Um, what's ended up happening is it's made um, it easier for companies to borrow money. Um, so anybody who could borrow is doing so, but then what it's done is the reverse. If you can't borrow, um, then you've got to, you've got to deal with folks like me. And if you're doing that, um, we're able to charge 12, 15%. So it's kind of odd, a zero rate environment, yet we're still charging 12 to 15. I love that you say, otherwise you've got to deal with me and you don't want to deal with me. Mark, I do wonder when you look at distressed investing going forward, how much of this is simply who knows bankruptcy law best? And I ask this of you knowing that you did clerk for a bankruptcy judge in the Southern District of New York. So is that really what this game has become? Um, I think you've got to understand um, bankruptcy law because what ends up happening now is um, you're going to have a number of restructurings. But I would tell you the most important part today is really understanding the balance sheet of a company. Um, that if we're gonna lend, are we you know, super secured? Are we senior? Where are we in the capital structure? Um, because things can change on a dime and you wanna make sure that you're covered. So I would tell you the capital structure is gonna be a little bit more important, but you better have that legal background. Well, embedded in this is the assumption that perhaps, or my presumption, that recoveries are not gonna be as robust this time around, given how much debt has been incurred and given some of the erosion with some of the covenant light uh, loans that we have seen. How much lower will recoveries be and how much fiercer will the battle be over who gets what? Oh, I think recoveries will definitely be lower. And I think the fights are gonna be absolutely insane because everybody's gonna be fighting over a smaller pie. So that, that's why the focus is really where are you in the capital structure, but you're gonna have lower recoveries. It's, it, it's hard for you not to, mainly because mm -hmm. of what you said, which is that people have taken on more debt um, and there's less equity value there. 
Mark, I want to talk about market drawdown, sharp ratios, and the ability to make two and 20, but that's going to have to pass. I've got a horde of people that want to know if you can bring the glory of Elsinder and Oscar Robertson and the Milwaukee Bucks back. What is the plan forward after signing this gentleman for a gajillion million dollars? What is the Bucks plan into 2021 in the NBA bubble? Um, I... I the plan is simple, it's to try to win a championship. Uh, the execution of that plan is gonna be kind of hard. Um, I, look, we're gonna do everything we can, and I think we've got probably, you know, our big three, which is, I think, second to none, at least in the East. Um, so I think we'll have a pretty good shot. Um, I think everybody's pretty excited. I think the hard part was really, re-signing Giannis and the fact that we were able to do that mm -hmm. is actually great for Milwaukee it's great for small market teams um, right. but more important it's great for our team Mark your leadership was there in a time for this nation where Milwaukee was a center and the soul of protest in this nation what do you want to see from Milwaukee this year what is the goal to get to a more peaceful America Look, I think at the end of the day, I think it's listening. It's trying to bring about change. But I think what we've tried to do is be at the forefront of that um, with our players, um, I think with everyone. So we're trying to bring about that change, but we're doing it by seeing how and what people need. So I think we're, you know, it's look, it's going to be difficult. It's going to take time. But hopefully if people have patience, we'll be able to do it. Mark Lassery, thank you so much. We're the basketball team in yeah. Milwaukee and also Avenue Capital as well. Europe has received the attention of Nathan Sheets in an esteemed career. As Undersecretary of Treasury, he provided leadership on international affairs with the International Monetary Fund. He did terrific work and then leading the charge on international economics for Willem Bauder at Citigroup. He is now at PGM and has had a terrific year melding e economics into their global call on fixed income. Nathan, let me go back here just a bit. How was 2020 for you in melding economics into the animals like Greg Peters? <laughs> Well, uh, that's a great question, and uh, that is uh, that is my challenge. But uh, I think that uh, the task at hand is very much articulating an economic narrative, and the narrative for 2020 has been quite clear. It's been about uh, uh, viruses and lockdowns, and then bounce backs as that uh, right. as that lockdown is eased and come back in again. And I think uh, our investors pay a lot of attention to what's going on in the macro, but so, also then bring with it the, the, the micro market uh, narrative. Someone that can do that is Janet Yellen. It will be the great transition from Fed to Treasury. You, of course, know Chair Yellen quite well. What will Yellen be like as Secretary of the Treasury? What will be her challenge in that political shift? So I think the appointment of Janet Yellen uh, to uh, uh, be Secretary of the Treasury is, uh, is a splendid appointment. Uh, she comes with platinum-plated credibility. When she speaks, others will uh, listen to her across the political spectrum. Uh, the Treasury is a different building than the Federal Reserve. 
But I think that uh, Janet uh, Yellen's insights into the labor market are going to be critical in helping to get the economy uh, back uh, on normal uh, footing. I think it will be very helpful there. Issues like financial regulation, managing the dollar, China relationship. These are all things that she's thought about and, and dealt with at the Federal Reserve and as an academic for, for many years. I think that she will have a very successful and constructive tenure. What do you think will be her view or her push when it comes to the dollar? There's been some concern about whether she'll continue the sort of strong dollar being a good thing narrative or whether she'll piggyback with what President Trump was saying and frankly with what a lot of economists say, which is that a weaker dollar will give a tailwind to the U.S. economy. Well, I think this is one of the key issues on the international side of the Treasury, that uh, on the one hand, uh, I think there might be a case that uh, the strong dollar policy has been around for a long time. Uh, Can we still say that a strong dollar is in the U.S. interest and particularly in the interests of U.S. workers? I think for some time that uh, organized labor has uh, challenged that. On the other hand, the strong dollar did a lot of positive and constructive things, that policy uh, in the international realm, where it gave the United States uh, moral standing and moral legitimacy, essentially said, we'll play by the rules and we expect others to play by the rules as well. And what would, if, if they want to deviate from it, what would another structure look like? And would it carry those those positive benefits? of allowing the United States to uh, uh, influence the policies of other countries in the same way. But I think this is something they're going to be struggling with. We're speaking with Nathan Sheets of PGIM, and just the backdrop today is of vaccines that are gaining steam of a $900 billion stimulus bill that was passed in Congress. And just now uh, crossing the, the Bloomberg right now that Alex Azar, the head of HHS, is saying that expect late February, early March general <laughs> vaccine programs. Given what we got overnight from Congress and given the expectations for the time frame of vaccinations, is the fiscal support already on the table enough to carry the economy through? So my feeling is the goal was to build a bridge and this $900 billion stimulus package certainly does that. Over the next few months, we'll be putting uh, a 4% of GDP into the economy, 17% uh, at an annual rate. Uh, I think it uh, protects the economy from downside risks and importantly protects the most vulnerable parts of the household distribution as well as small firms that may be uh, at risk. So I I think it does very effectively build that bridge uh, into the vaccine. And then I think once the the vaccine arrives, you know, put on your seatbelt. I think this economy could really rip. Nathan Sheets, I want to go to your wheelhouse, which is international economic dynamics, the idea of the movable parts out there. Does the dollar move in 2021 within a traditional framework or are things so distorted that we need a different prism to look at dollars six months or a year from now? Well, I think this is this is a fantastic question. Uh, typically, a, a weaker dollar is associated with a stronger euro. And then as the euro moves, that then escalates and moves into the emerging market space. But I think we're at a place where on the one hand, the dollar is likely to weaken. 
On the other hand, I'm not sure the euro area is well placed given the economic challenges that they're facing with the, with the virus to be able to absorb a stronger okay, but, but currency. Nathan, so well I think said, it could happen in the EM space. I don't mean to interrupt, Nathan, but you're truly yes. world-class on this. There's a doom and gloom fear out there of Plaza Louvre redux, of Ruben Dollar redux. Aren't we in a largely floating exchange rate economy where we've done away with so many of the rigidities of those older systems? So uh, when we go back and look at some of those uh, past accords where there were uh, broad agreements with respect to currency, the uh, misvaluations and misalignments were much larger. And I think in addition, as you're pointing out, Tom, the official sector relative to the private sector was much larger. So on the one hand, uh, I don't see those same uh, misalignments. So I wouldn't expect some broad-based uh, 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 agreement. And on the other hand, it is a lot harder for the public sector to enforce its will on, on the FX market. Uh, so I think it really is, at the end of the day, about these macro fundamentals. And I think they point to a somewhat weaker dollar uh, and uh, may not point to a much stronger euro from here. Nathan, how much is higher inflation part of that weaker dollar call? So uh, my feeling is that inflation over the medium term is going to stay uh, relatively muted as it was before the pandemic. Now, as we're coming out of, uh, out of this situation and as the vaccines arrive, could we have a temporary boost in inflation where there were some bottlenecks and shortages? Yes. So uh, I think that in general, it will continue to be a low inflation environment. And so my view of a weaker dollar is not so much predicated on an inflation call. So the reason why I ask that is because earlier you were saying that mid next year, you could start to see the economy to use your uh, high level academic speak really rip. <laughs> and so I'm wondering what the uh, consequences will be if that isn't necessarily on inflation, whether we continue with this Goldilocks scenario where we can see growth and we could see job, uh, jobless uh, rates go down and yet inflation stay muted. Can you walk us through that whole narrative? So uh, my feeling is that during the second half of next year, as the economy is, is booming, that uh, we are likely to see some shortages and bottlenecks manifest themselves and a temporary period of somewhat elevated inflation. To some extent, we saw that uh, in the third quarter of this past year as we came out of the, the spring lockdowns, but that as we move into 2022 and beyond, that these deep structural factors like demographics, deleveraging, automation, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and uh, inflation expectations being well anchored on the downside will reassert themselves. And uh, it will continue to be a low inflation world with perhaps even further disinflation as we well, continue to age. Nathan Sheets, thank you for wisdom across this 2020. Look forward to speaking to you into the new year. With PGM, uh, Nathan Sheets joins us. 
We've tried all across Bloomberg surveillance, really from February, to give you the pros on this. Someone that's helped us so much out of Hope College, Kalamazoo, and of course the Combine at uh, Wisconsin, Madison, and now holding court in Washington, and their acclaimed microbiology program, Deborah Fuller, uh, joins us right now. Deborah, you and I were talking on the break about the need to get back in the lab and solve the mysteries. What's the great mystery we need to solve with this fear of mutation, this fear of variant? Well, there are two uh, mysteries we need to solve. The, the first is whether it truly is uh, more transmissible, and the second is, does, is this going to impact the efficacy of our vaccine? So, uh, you know, if you, if you break that down just a little bit, that this is a new variant that has about 20 new mutations, and it does appear to be taking over as a dominant strain in the U.K., uh, based on, you know, there's a substantial increase in the frequency in detecting the strain in, in the population. Uh, but what we don't know yet is uh, whether that is truly an increase in transmission. We're going to need additional tests to really validate that, such as does it outcompete other viral strains in, in a cell culture study in the lab? Mm-hmm. Uh, does it result in higher amounts of viral shedding uh, in animals infected with it? This usually does translate to higher transmission. So those, those particular experiments need to be done to to confirm that uh what does it mean for vaccines we don't really know yet uh there is no evidence yet that these new mutations are going to impact the mm-hmm. efficacy of vaccines uh there's some confidence among the manufacturers that it won't uh, right. but uh, they still need to test that well you know in microbiology it's about the nucleus the cytoplasm and all the drama at the cellular wall the drama here are the fearsome spikes that we see on this virus do we have an understanding of the physiology of those spikes and what we can do about it? The, the spike protein on the virus, you mean? Yes. Yeah, the spike protein in the virus is absolutely essential for that virus to be able to enter the cell. And that's why we've designed vaccines to target that particular spike protein. It is going to be the area that the virus is likely going to mutate the most because mutations are often driven by the virus wanting to uh, uh, improve its own fitness, its own replication. And the spike protein would be an obvious target for that. What we've done with the vaccines, though, is that we've targeted a particular area on the spike protein that is absolutely essential for the virus to be able to enter into the cell. So if it mutates that particular area, there's a good chance that it actually is going to uh, abort itself. So that's probably why we haven't seen uh, many mutations have risen in this in this uh, virus. Many of them in the spike protein have an impact yet on the vaccine. With that said, uh, I have I had a mentor once told me that if if a, if a virus can, it will. And viruses can eventually potentially figure out a way to evade vaccine immunity. And that's why it's so important every time one new one emerges like this one, we have to uh, look at our vaccines and see whether or not uh, these new mutations uh, could result in resistance. I'll leave the uh, cellular biology to Tom Keen. But, Deborah, I've got a much simpler question, which is when will kids be able to be vaccinated given the lack of information in studies so far to the state? So what they're doing right now is they are initiating uh, clinical trials that will include uh, younger children. And uh, unlike what was required for 
for adults where we had to go all the way to an efficacy study comparing placebo versus uh, versus those who are taking the vaccine. What we can do is study those who have already received the vaccine and we know that they're protected. We can look at the, the levels of immunity they have and then use that information to say, are, hey, are these kids who are getting uh, in our clinical trials developing antibodies or immune responses comparable to what we see in protected adults? And if they are, then I think they could probably get more uh, extend the authorization to to include children of course that that really depends on on assuring that these vaccines are also safe in children so based on the rollout so far deborah what's your best estimate for a time frame of when we'll reach some sort of i hate to say this because i know tom has a lot of issues with it herd immunity Yes, herd immunity uh, being defined as when we get sufficient amounts of vaccine-induced immunity in the population so that the virus is not able to, to transmit as well anymore. So it really depends on how many, many people we can get to, to come forward to, to get vaccinated. If we can get over 60% of people vaccinated, number one, and number two, if the distribution of the rollout happens in, in the schedule that they're predicting, let's say April, most everybody will have an opportunity to get a vaccine, and we can get 60% of people to to take a vaccine and the, the manufacturer oh. to produce that much vaccine, then we could probably see uh, herd immunity uh, sometime in, in late spring, early summer. That is the money question. Deborah Fuller, thank you so much for the money answer with the University of Washington, I should say, School of Medicine. President-elect, there's an inauguration. It'll be, I don't know, the third week of January or something like that. The second most famous person to ever graduate from the University of Delaware. We now welcome the most famous person to ever graduate from the University of Delaware. Lizanne Saunders joins us from Charles Schwab with just a lot of good years of perspective. Lizanne, I've got to go to the money question, which you're always so good at, which is not the blather, the punditry, but what are we actually doing with our money? What does Schwab see that people are actually doing? Well, it, from a fund flows perspective, which goes beyond just Schwab, but broader fund flows, inclusive of both mutual funds and ETFs, you really started to see a significant move back into U.S. equities uh, starting in the beginning of November. Uh, much at the same time, you got the initial Pfizer vaccine news that led to a, another yeah. stage of the rotation, which was not so much into cyclical areas, but into, all right, what hasn't worked yet? Hence the big move into energy and financials. Um, interestingly, though, the larger speculators are basically moving to the other side of the trade. So they've been upping their uh, speculative short positions on the S&P. Right. So there's a bit of a divergence, which I'm a bit worried about the sentiment environment because fund flows was, one of, was sort of the last thing to fall since sentiment got a bit frothy in early September. It was mostly by the newly minted day traders in the options market. And then it became more pervasive in attitudinal measures of sentiment into fund flows since early November. And the success of the market, I think, has bred a risk, which is that we're, we're looking at fairly frothy sentiment. We don't go through the math this close to the holidays, but the bottom line is if somebody's short and they cover, it develops a convexity or acceleration of buying. Are we setting ourselves up for a big short cover if we get good news on the vaccine? Uh, I think there could be a setup for short covering on a number of factors. Yes, good news on the vaccine, maybe less weak economic data driven by 
the current state of the virus. Um, it, we've already gotten some of the good news on the vaccine specific to the amount of shots that can be administered from yeah. each vial. But of course, there's also the possibility of negative news. You know, Dr. Gottlieb said, I think yesterday that the strain is that was seen in the UK, this new strain is probably already in the United States. And we don't right. yet know the details right. of whether it's, it can be combated by the same yeah. vaccine. So I think there are there are risks on on both yeah. sides. If we take a generalization, Lizanne Saunders, that we go seven, eight, nine years of quiet in value, and then we get a value lift, which pretty much makes up for it. Have we moved away from growthiness towards that value pop people have been waiting for? Or do you not see the determinants that make that happen yet? Well, I think we have to distinguish between the fundamentals of value and the index components of value. This this so-called move to value has been more driven by the surge in financials and energy which are much more heavily weighted in the value indexes. And even within the value indexes, financials is a huge play. Russell 1000 value has 17 or 18% financials. Russell 2000 value has 28% financial, financials. So if you get a big move in financials, you have to look at where it accrues from a style okay. index perspective. So we just have to do more than just watch the headlines of yeah. say money going from growth to value or large to small and understand that there are sector drivers that need to be considered. Right. And another example, healthcare is half the weight in Russell two thousand value as it is in Russell one thousand value. So if you get a big healthcare move over the course of a day or a series of days, it's going to accrue to the greater benefit of large value than right. small value. Well, you just heard, there's two things here, folks, and this is why it's such a joy to have Ms. Saunders on with us. Literally this morning, as I was beginning my day, I looked on the Bloomberg terminal, Russell 1000, 2000, 3000, and asked myself exactly the question we observed from Lizanne Saunders about bank or financial allocation across these indices. All of the indices are different. What's the biggest mistake? We have, Lizanne, that we're slaves to the Dow or we're slaves to VIX dynamics. I mean, that's so simplistic, isn't it? It is simplistic. And another another example I often give of the whole, what are you talking about when you talk about growth versus value? Is it the fundamentals? Is it the factors? Or is it the index labels? If you, if you go back to October of 02, I know that's a while ago now, but think about when the tech bust had finally ended, you had the NASDAQ 100 down, I think 83% at that point from peak to right. drop, 50% plus for the overall NASDAQ and the S&P. If you were a value factor oriented investor, if you wanted to buy deep value, you wanted to buy the tech stocks then. Russell hadn't moved them all from the growth indexes to the value indexes. So if you just stopped the analysis that, okay, I need to buy value, and you bought the value indexes, you would have still been buying utility stocks, not the tech stocks. So I think this is an environment where you want to have a hybrid approach from a factor perspective. You want to look for companies that have those growth characteristics, but you want to have a value mindset in terms of what you pay for that growth. And that that spans across growth indexes, value indexes, small cap indexes, large cap indexes, sector indexes, et cetera. Do the tech winners, the juggernauts, do they still have growthiness yet priced at value when you look at their revenue prospects? 
So I wouldn't, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't call them value stocks. But if you, you know, there's too many comps to circa 2000 with regard to those names, especially because as of early September, the big five were 25% of the index and they were the big five back then were only 18% of the index. But the multiple comparison is shows the, the stronger fundamentals. So back in 2000, the largest five stocks had a multiple of, I think, 61. And now they have a multiple of about half that. Not that 31 or 32 is cheap by any means, but it reflects the much stronger underlying yeah. fundamentals of those types of, of companies. Not, I'm not an analyst covering right. those companies, so that, that shouldn't be seen as some implicit right. buy right. recommendation. Right. It's just a fact about valuations. What is the, the, the place to go if you want dividend growth to be a yield equivalent? I mean, I know this is hazardous, folks. I go back to the day Bill Gross told me Procter & Gamble was a yield equivalent, and that made worldwide headlines. I mean, is there a kind of dividend that's more yieldy than others right now? Well, you can't. And, and again, I, I don't. I'm not going to give you individual names. Of course, I'm, I'm of course. Stocks, yeah, sure, sure. But you know, there are screening tools, including our own Schwab Equity Ratings, but but there are others that do it where you can screen for dividend yield, but you're also screening for strong underlying fundamentals, the ability to maintain and, mm-hmm. and or grow that dividend. And too many investors in a yield-starved world will screen by dividend yield, rank from high to low, and then don't do any additional analysis. And we all know that an extremely high dividend yield can be an underlying sign of weak fundamentals and a much greater likelihood that that dividend gets cut or eliminated altogether given those weaker fundamentals. So you have to you have to take a multi-factor approach to screening when looking for yield to make sure you are getting mm-hmm. that strong underlying fundamental, the quality balance sheet, et cetera. Liz and Saunders, thank you so much. Just very, very informative. Oh, she's, of course, with Charles Schwab. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.